Welcome to the Safina podcast. I am your host, Sebastian Engstrom, and today Ta Witty joins me. He is a psychedelic professional, a leader in the space, and you will soon understand why. He has truly put in the work, and he is probably just like you, just like me. Once lost, now found. Everything from abuse, nuances of sexual abuse, growing up in a rough, tough neighborhood of Brooklyn, and everything that went into it to finding his passion for helping people. This has now transformed him into the healer, the amazing human being that he is today. He is no longer suffering from insomnia. He's no longer hiding. He now lives life with an open heart. And we'll go into exactly how that happened. Thank you for tuning in. Okay, so it's amazing to have you on. Uh, just I want to say with deep gratitude. Um, just thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. I'm grateful to be here. I'm grateful for the work that you're doing. And I'm grateful to be uh, part of the voice to your audience. Mm. Thank you. One thing, what it says behind you is integration. When we saw you for the first time and cold at Paleo Effects, um, my wife and I had just uh, done a MDMA ceremony. And um, it was the first one that I've done. I've been on, um, I've been in the um, the game of psychedelics, or it's been surrounding me for quite some time. But I've been resistant, saying, "Okay, that is your path." I'm more of the uh, you can say the the superior mindset of a spiritual person, like, "Oh, I'm going to do the hard way. I'm going to do the uh, the meditation. I'm going to do the breath work. Oh, you don't need psychedelics." But eventually. Uh, I saw the profound work and the healing that it's done. And my wife connected with this woman in Santa Cruz, uh, just beautiful facilitation that was done. And we went there to um, access something deep within us to connect as a couple. And uh, we hoped for it to be a beautiful session, just the two of us, because um, especially having children, the dynamic changed. And we just wanted to get closer and find that deep love instead of finding the flaws within one another. Um, we did want, that was the initial part, but the big part is some significant trauma from uh, Sophia's childhood that came up. But in that, the flip side of that was that I found myself being able to really hold space. And I've been so caught up in myself one can almost say as the uh, ungrounded, uh, unhealthy masculine that I now found myself as the rooted, grounded mountain of a man that I can be. And I shifted me on a very subtle level, level that I didn't realize at first. Um, but all of this, when I'm, when I'm telling you this story is when we, when we were very shaken up, it was just a few days after we almost canceled the trip. To, to Austin. And then we came. And um, when I saw the topic that was that you and, and Cole were, were hosting on, I'm like, ah, old things came up. Should we really go into this? 
and eventually we did and um it moved me deeply uh, i was in tears several times and especially by your story um and ever since then we just we've been so grateful for that there are professionals and deeply you can say brave people like yourself who are taking this to another level of being serious about how this should be done and can be done and how to help people um is there anything that comes up for you when i when i tell you about that yeah a tremendous amount of gratitude you know i've been i've been a nurse for 29 years and i worked in er's all over new york city for 25 of those 29 years and you know to to be recognized in a space where all the culmination the the, the all of this, these experiences have come together to get me into a position where I could actually teach people how to expand themselves differently than the traditional healthcare model. And for someone to have to come to a talk that I'm doing at a conference and have a profound experience. And there, and there were several people in that room that came to me and said they had profound experiences mm -hmm. just by hearing me speak about yep. psychedelics and the potential of it and how to integrate this into body and that there are people who are crafting something for people to have a, a long-term experience that they are sovereign in creating. That it's not like the doctor told me this, so the doctor's fixing me and healing me, or the shaman told me this and the shaman is doing this. And so to the reflection that you're that you're offering to me right now is is warming my soul because the reflection that you're 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 rendering me is this. I couldn't see where I was going for all these years. I was like, what is all it? What am I doing here? You know, what am I doing with my music and traveling? What am I doing with nursing? What am I doing with personal training? Why am I learning all of this stuff? And now I see. And when a, a person such as yourself that I have a tremendous amount of reverence for comes to me and, and shares with me what you shared with me then and sharing what you're sharing with me right now, it it validates me and i had a, a huge there, were, there was a lot of trauma in my life and drama in my life around me not feeling valuable and that's been a lot of my work and so when when i have a reflection like this it's that this is currency for me this is the most valuable thing in my life is to be recognized mm -hmm. for what i am as a human being that's contributing to the life of another person who's contributing to the lives of many so that for me reinforces the foundation of what I am and I am of source I am of God or universe whatever you want to call it I am of all of this and I am a huge part of it and so I'm creating from this space of limitlessness and so to see another aspect of myself celebrate me puts me in a position or in in it inspires me to be in a position of celebration of myself hmm. so your story it's just amazing. And you're, you're touching upon a few things. Like how did it all start? Let's just go into it. Cause that's what really moved me so deeply and how you changed direction multiple times in it. And even as you got the call, you refused to call. Yeah. So please, how did it all start? What are the call, the call to work in psychedelics? Yeah. Right? Let's, let's, let's even start. Like, what was it like growing up? Well, growing up was an interesting space. I was I'm the middle of three of three kids. I have uh, my my mother and my father uh were 13 years, I think 11 or 13 years apart in age. I can't recall right now. Um but we they had three kids. They had my brother, then 
I was born 23 months after my brother and my sister three years after me. And so I'm the middle child. And when I was, when I was around six or seven, I asked my mother, how come sometimes, you know, because between December 16th and January 2nd, my brother is, uh, there, there's an age difference of one year. And then there's an age difference of two years after January 2nd. And so I would ask, I asked my mother one day, how come sometimes I'm one year younger than my brother? And how come sometimes I'm two years younger? And she said, well, you're the surprise baby. Um, we didn't plan for you. So you came really close together. And so I took that, that idea that she rendered to me and I turned it into, um, they didn't mean, they didn't want me. I was a mistake. And so I had this, this undercurrent of shame that I created from this statement that my mother gave me. And then I used that as a lens to look at how I was treated. And, you know, there was a lot of, you know, and I've, I've done some work with myself and my mother around this, this very particular space of me being treated differently than my brother and my sister. I was always, I always felt like I was the problem. I always, you know, everything was inconvenient with me. And this was, this, and I got confirmation about this from <laughs> From the horse's mouth, you know? And so I had this, this reinforced the idea that I had very limited value and that I was a problem and that something was wrong with me and that, you know, they could do without me. And so there was a lot of, I'm running away from home, you know, ideas, a lot of maybe not being here anymore ideas as a child growing up. And my brother, um, you know, had, had a very tumultuous relationship with my brother. There was a lot of physical abuse, a lot of beating up, a lot of hating a lot of i'm gonna kill you when mommy leaves um you know it's this i was i spent a tremendous amount of time in fear in my in my life and so i had issues sleeping uh when i was a kid i would i would uh i would pass out and you couldn't wake me up and so i wet the bed until i was 14. And so I had a lot around that, you know, my, my brother would tell people in the neighborhood and tell people at school. And I had all of this shame around wetting the bed. And my father would take my mattress and put it up against the wall and say he was airing it out. It was disgusting. And it was just, there was so much stuff that happened to me as a child um, that not just happened to me, that was happening around me. And I was a participant in, um, you know, they, they thought something was wrong with me. So they took me to the doctor, they took me and they ran all these tests on me. They put tubes in my bladder to see what was wrong with my bladder, why I couldn't stop peeing in the bed. And it, it had nothing to do with the physicality of my, mm. my body. It had mm. to do with my psyche and what was going on and how scared I was. And I didn't know this. And so when I, when I reached, um, you know, there was, there was a host of other things that happened in, in my childhood, you know, sexual explorations with cousins, with male cousins and all of these different things that happened because, um, I questioned my sexuality as a child because my brother would always call me a faggot, you faggot. Right. And so I, I took my brother's word for it. Maybe he knew something I didn't know. And I explored mm. in spaces that were really, really wonky for me. And so I had a lot of shame around my sexuality. I had a lot of shame around a lot of stuff as a child. And so when I got to high school, um, I ended up going to the same high school as my brother. That was one of the only high schools that I got into. And he was so angry that I was going to the same school as him. So angry. And so I made sure that um, that my brother couldn't tell anybody that I was going to bed. So I just stopped going to sleep. And so I had insomnia from the time I was 14 to the time I was uh, 44. It was 44. Yeah, I think it was about 40, no, around 44, 43, 44. No, 
it was before that. It was, gosh, I'm 50 now. So my insomnia went away in 2013, I believe it was, 2013 or 2014. So yeah, around 40, 43, 44, something like that. 44, maybe 40. I don't know. It doesn't make a difference. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, I grew up in a, in a, in a, in a shit storm of, of self-doubt and self-loathing. And uh, I got into really, really t- toxic situations and circumstances. Um, I started to explore uh, sex when I was around 14 uh, with, with, with females. And, uh, and by the time I was 16, it was just nonstop sex all the time. Everything was sex, 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 sex. I couldn't think of anything else. And I got involved with a, uh, a girl who told me that she was one age and she was another age. <laughs> she was younger than she said she was. Mm. And we would have sex all the time. Like we would, like her mother would go to work and we would just have sex every day, like all day. And it was the most profound sexual experiences. It was fantastic. And, um, and I, I, I had this self-saboteur inside of me that would not allow myself to be loved because um, somebody would take it away because love was always taken away at home. Um, and I was afraid of the love that I, that this, that this girl rendered to me. And so I sabotaged the relationship and, um, I started seeing somebody that really just did not give me any kind of significant full love situation. It was, everything was conditional. It was perfect. (laughs) It was a perfect, uh, demonstration of, of, uh, low self-esteem and so the the girl that i had that relationship with she called me one day the, the initial relationship she called me one day and she said um i need to talk to you and so i said so i went over there i went over and i spoke to her i, I used to skateboard i used to compete and um i skated over to her house and she said listen um i had sex with your brother and i was like okay and I was like, she was like, I was really mad at you for leaving and walking away from me. And I couldn't get it. That was the closest I could get to any, to you was your brother. And she's like, are you mad? I was like, I can't be mad. I mean, look at the way I left the situation. And, you know, oral sex was my thing. Like I love oral sex, a big deal for me. And I learned my oral sex pleasure from this girl. Right. She was amazing, phenomenal. She today to this day, she is still the barometer for my sex life. Like if if I'm gonna be like this sex is awesome, it's compared to this girl. Right. And so she asked me, she was like, Do do you love me? And I said, I do. And she said, Do you love the sex that we have? And I said, I do. And like, I do. And she was like, Do you love the way I go down on you? And I was like, Yeah. I do. I love it. And she said, did you ever wonder why a girl my age could do that to you the way I do? And I said, well, I never thought about it. And she said, do you want to know? I said, tell me. And so this, this girl's mother was this beautiful, dark skinned woman. It's very sad. And her father was this really, really tall, angry, pale white guy. And, um, her father hated her mother for having a black baby for her. And so he would invite his friends over on the weekend and he would have them have sex with her and he would make her go down on them. And that's how she learned. That's how she learned to have the sex that we had. 
And so this put me into a spiral of guilt and shame um, for for desiring to feel the way I felt with this girl based on <laughs> where she got the skills for this from. And so I, I had a hard time being in any relationship with anybody and asking them for sexual gratification or to participate in that stuff because of the shame that I felt, the guilt that I felt around that situation, that this is where my greatest pleasure came from, such a heinous situation. Mm. And so this affected my sex life. And so a lot of the sex that I had moving forward was in the shadows i used to pay for sex i used to drive around in my car and you know do all this crazy stuff um because i was and i didn't know why i was doing it but i was looking for the connection that i had with her and i was looking for it through these activities and i never found that connection um, that i had with her and so it, it this put me into some really awkward spaces um, school was crazy. Writing music was was bananas. Like it was such a dark time in my life, and uh, I I ended up staying with the, the girl that I left her for, and she was physically abusive to me. She would burn me with things, like all of these really really crazy situations and circumstances around women. And my father had always taught me to never hit women, never hurt women, only walk away, let them do whatever they do. And so I was physically abused. And this was a thing for me to be abused verbally, physically, mentally by other people and allow it. And just I had this resilience, you know, from being beat up by my brother all the time. And so this was this was a thing for me. And so this was a pattern that was built into my nervous system. I would attract people into these spaces and then I would go into the shadow and look to connect and have sex. And so this was a, a, a mess, a mishmash of, of all kinds of crazy stuff. And so I didn't get it, the attention from my parents that I, that I really wanted. So I made sure I messed my grades up in high school and they still didn't pay any attention to me. They paid a lot of attention to my brother and my younger sister. And so I ended up with really terrible grades. And so I couldn't get into any solid solid uh, accredited uh, colleges. And so I went to a community college in in uh, in Brooklyn called Kingsborough Kingsboro Community College. And they had the one of the best passing rates for nursing in, in the country for the for the boards. And so I took nursing, right? I, I took nursing um, and I, I excelled. I went through the whole thing with flying colors. I'm, I mean, I believe myself to be a very intelligent person and academia, academia has nothing to do with my intelligence. And so when I went and I took all of the, the proficiency exams, I excelled and I did all this stuff and they put me in these honors classes when I was in, in community college. And so I got my nursing degree and I graduated when I was 20 years old. I got my nursing degree. I got my license. I started working as a nurse and I was still doing my sexual stuff on the sidelines. And so I was doing all this really grimy stuff and I was helping people with their lives at the same time. And so, so I was watching the contract. So why, excuse me, why nursing? Well, uh, I had a lot of my friends told me that I was able to help them navigate psychological situations and all of these things when they would come to me with issues i would help them navigate it and they would be like Hi, where did you learn this stuff i'm like i don't know i learned it from my experiences and so i had this idea of becoming a psychiatrist right because i wanted to help people with mental things and emotional things yeah. and then uh so i said listen i mean i mean my grades are terrible there's no way i'm getting into medical school with these grades let me go become a nurse and then i'll i'll i'll, I'll I'll do this. I paid for school on my own. And then I, uh, I had no student loan debt when I got out of, 
out of college, right? And so I was like, I can pay, I can use nursing to pay for medical school, <laughs> right? And and then when I got through with nursing, I was like, I don't want to do medicine. When I started working with doctors and I saw what they were going through, I was like, I don't want to do this. And I really love caring for people. And so that's how I got into nursing. And I really, I really loved nursing. And it was it was awesome to be a nurse. The system though was really, really dysfunctional. And so I would go and I would, I would um I would work and help people and do all these things. And I just watched the system. And so when I graduated from nursing school, it was in 1992. And that was at the the early part of HIV. And so HIV rocked New York City. I mean, it was a nightmare. And so this is where a lot of really, a lot of questions came into mind with me is because there was HIV everywhere and I was having sex with all these different people, right? And so there was more guilt and shame. I mean, there was, there was protection for the most part, but there were times where there wasn't, right? And so I was, I was, there were times, I'm, I'm being honest, there were times where I was not using condoms, right? And so there was all of this, like, I was so wound up inside. I wasn't sleeping, right? The guy wasn't, wasn't sleeping because I was afraid I was going to wet the bed because I had not dealt with that. And here I am in adult, right? I'm having sex with all these people. There's HIV rampant everywhere. I'm helping people, saving their lives. Um, I still have my dynamics with my mother, right? My mother's a physician. My father's an x-ray technician. My father had retired. All of these these things are going on. I still have this, this relationship with my brother. I was estranged from my brother for five years. My younger sister went off to study medicine. All of these different dynamics were going on and I was juggling all this stuff. Meanwhile, I'm not sleeping. I'm having sex with all these people and HIV is rampant in New York. And so I'm, I'm in this perpetual state of fight or flight all the time. And so I don't know how I was navigating all this stuff. And and still in that, I was able to assist people in navigating their spaces and to hold space for people and to be friend and to be brother and to be all of these things to all of these different people. And I learned to navigate all this. And so I started writing music uh, in 19... 1991, I started to write music, right? Because hip hop was a big deal and I really didn't like what was coming on the radio now. And so I was like, I want to write my own music. And so, so, so I started did, writing. I, I got to ask, who did you like back then? Oh my gosh. Uh, my, my favorite my favorite MCs, uh, Rakim, Cool G Rap, Tribe Called Quest, yeah. um, uh, Grand, Grand, uh, Grand Pooba and Brand Nubians. Um, man, there's so many people. There was a guy named Sui that was on the underground that I that I just loved. Um, KMD, Third Base. Oh man, there's so many. Slick Rick was my. Are you kidding, Slick Rick? Mm-hmm. Like, just one of my top five MCs of all times. Um, you know, and that's what that was my start space was uh UTFO. Uh. You know, Roxanne, Roxanne was one of the greatest songs that I, I I remember hearing that song for the first time in my grandmother's basement. And I was blown away, you know, just just blown away at at the lyrical play. Mm-hmm. And so I, I was I loved words. And so this is one of the things with me with with English. I love wordplay and linguistics. And so I would orchestrate my lyrics into these really awesome complex spaces at first i would follow the battle rap stuff and insulting people and doing all of these things just the same cliche trash that i had been exposed to and not that it was like like 
all battle stuff is trash, but there was a lot of garbage that I was exposed to. And I was following what was on the mainstream radio to make my records. And so, so I moved. So mm-hmm. bringing in another nuance to that, where could you mention? So Brooklyn Community College, do you mind uh, sharing more about what is it really like growing up in Brooklyn at that time for people who don't know? Because that brings a flavor to this that some may not know. Yeah. Yeah, man, listen, so Brooklyn was a very interesting place. And so in the neighborhood that I grew up in, there is it's the most culturally diverse place in the world. Uh, over 60 languages are spoken in that neighborhood. It's called Flatbush. And I went by, I still do, go by Ta from the Bush, right? I'm from Flatbush, right? And so Ta from the Bush was my, that was my name. And you can ask people in, in New York about it. <laughs> it's Ta from the Bush. Uh-huh. And, and, and um, growing up as a kid, watching the gangs like so we moved in the 70s so i was born in 71 we moved through some tremendous gang phases in new york city and uh transformers came out and there was this gang called the decepticons and the decepticons would destroy everything and it was they would go out in these these we they would call them posses right and they would go out in these rampages and they would just why we call we called it wilding right? You're mm-hmm. wilding out, right? Mm-hmm. And they would go and destroy everything and hurt people and all of this stuff. And so these were the things that were going on. Uh, we had we had HIV, we had gangs, we had gangs, we had HIV, we had crack, right? And crack was just, in the 80s was bananas. And crackheads would come and break into your car, break into your house, steal your stuff, you know, your, 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 friend's daughter or son was a crackhead and they would come over and you wouldn't know that they were crackhead and your stuff mm. would be missing like this was brooklyn like and it was it was pretty crazy for a long time and you know the the, the cops were all all white people and they would beat up on black people and latinos relentlessly and so the stuff that you see on the news now is, is this is it's a lot more subdued than it was in the in the 80s the 70s 80s and 90s um people are sensationalizing it because it's put on the news right mm-hmm. it's it's and, and you can't get away from it because everybody has a camera now but this is this stuff has been going on for a long time in new york um and so there there's you know my mother was definitely afraid of me being out when the light when the street lights would come on at night you had to be home mm-hmm. if it when it got dark and the street lights were coming you had to be home otherwise my mother was absolutely terrified that we were going to get killed by cops hmm. not and, or other or other people right and so brooklyn was pretty crazy uh, as a as a kid as a teen and um in the 80s uh in the, in the late 80s beepers came out <laughs> and and drug dealers had beepers and it was a really really easy way for people to get in contact with one another right? and so was, you could beep me on my beeper and i'd go to the payphone and call you and then we'd meet up somewhere and uh when when you know if you were if you were seen with a beeper the cops would would, would assume you're selling drugs or your parents would assume you're selling drugs and it just there was this whole deal and and there was people were hurting each other like crazy people were doing it was just like brooklyn was just one huge ghetto Hmm. and and there was the neighborhoods where white folks lived and it was like that's the white people's neighborhood 
And so there was all this segregation. And so there was, you know, and if you got caught in a neighborhood where there were houses, right, if you lived in the buildings and you got caught in a neighborhood where there were houses, the cops would come and, and come and mess with you. And so there was there was a lot of dynamics. There's, there's so many dynamics. I, I mean, it would take me all day to discuss the dynamics of growing up in Brooklyn. But people were there. was a lot of gangs. There was a lot of times. And, and my mother put me and my brother and my sister into Catholic school. And so we would wear uniforms. And so we were targets for the other kids, the kids that mm -hmm. went to public school because, oh, your mom got money and they put you in this school. So let's rob you. And so people would dig through our pockets and, you know, take our stuff. And, and it was it was crazy. And so, you know, I spent so there was fear all over me all the time. I was scared of crack. I was scared of crackheads. I was scared of HIV. I was scared of my brother. I was scared of my mom. I was scared of of everything. I was scared of my family being hurt. And I was doing all in all of this. I was doing my best to protect my little sister from my brother and from getting hurt from anything outside. Mm -hmm. So the, the dynamics for me, I thought this was normal. Um, and uh, I, a lot of my other friends had similar dynamics. But this is not normal what quote unquote normal well I guess was normalized it's not natural to live this way I thought everybody lived this way and so you know as things started to get more subdued moving through the the 80s and into the 90s and uh you know HIV started to scale back they started they came out with a drug called AZT which helped HIV to to kind of the, the symptoms and, and the the syndromes around HIV and AIDS to 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 slow down which got us as a as a as a as a race of people to to kind of isolate HIV into a space, things started to 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 even out and crack started to even out. All of these things started to even out at the same time. And then mm -hmm. we started to have financial crashes and all of these weird things were happening in Brooklyn. And um people started to move into uh into space, the white people started to move out of Brooklyn. And so the housing market shifted. And so people started to, uh, other people, blacks, Latinos, Asian folks started to buy up the houses and everything started to mix even more, hmm. which started to even things out. And so things started to get safer. Um, things started to change. People started to care more. Black and Latino folks started to get into the government and things started to change. And so things, so there was this evolution in Brooklyn. And that's, and that's what it was like coming up in Brooklyn. And I mean, I, we could have a whole week's long worth of podcast for me telling you stories and stuff around that. But that that's a that's kind of a synopsis of, of how it was, what it was like growing up. And, you know, being in, in the hip hop situation was, was awesome for me. I felt really, I felt powerful and I felt connected when I was on stage, right? And like, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm, this, I'm this scared dude by myself and all this stuff. And I, I got on stage and I felt when people were listening to me and when somebody would come up to me after and be like, man, that, that, that hit home, that was just so here. Mm -hmm. That got me into a space to start to open up and open up my vulnerability and start to, and start to be different. Hip hop initially was was a thing where if you copied somebody's style, you were biting, and that was the mm -hmm. biggest crime in the world to bite somebody's style. And I found that I was doing that. I was like, I don't want to bite. That's that's the the most heinous hip hop crime you could do is copy somebody else's style and try to claim it as your own. And so I started to to do a lot of avant garde stuff and just do really weird things. And my stage show, they used to call me the Gallagher of hip hop because I would go to my shows with this big tub full of props and I would set up the whole stage and like where other other MCs or rap 
rappers would get on stage and just rap in the mic and get off mm-hmm. the stage. I would have this elaborate stage show with these different hats and outfits and wigs and all these different things that I would put on in different parts of the show. And I would throw toilet paper. I had this one song called Toilet Paper and it was, here's some toilet paper, wipe your lip, MCs gonna come equip, you're just talking shit, right? And I would throw uh-huh. toilet paper out to the crowd and everybody in the crowd is waving toilet paper. <laughs> I, had <a> song, <laughs> I had a song called Middle Finger and what I did was, I had my money was so jacked up. I would go to the post office and get the the the, the overnight, not the overnight. The, I would get the express mail and the priority post things, and I would cut them and I would put them through my printer, and I would print this big middle finger and I would put it on sticks. I would go to uh to uh, there was a store, what is this store called Pergament, and they ha- they would have the stirrers for the paint, and I would get a bunch of stirrers and I would glue them to the middle finger, and everybody in the crowd would have these middle fingers. Put up your middle <laughs> finger, wave it around, and I would do all these absurd things, and I would do these shows where I would uh I would I would have like a a, a s'mores i would have graham crackers and and chocolate and marshmallows and i would be like come to my show and make s'mores and sit on the floor in these pillows right and uh-huh. it was just the weirdest stuff to do for a person who was on some hip-hop shit and so then I, there were other shows where i would have like peanut butter and jelly and you can come make your own sandwich and all of this stuff and people loved it and it was different than the other stuff and so people the, the fans that i had back then i still have now <laughs> like i have a solid thousand fans that love everything that i do musically and they're like oh you haven't done music in a while i'm like something's coming um so yeah so so you know that's part of my upbringing in in new york is all of the the influence that i've had around hip-hop um i I wrote an album the the last album that i released was in 2010 the last full-length album that i released i've done single since then but it was 2010 it was a book a full book in an album called Luminous Dark Alleys, The Insomniac Works. And it it was a a title where the insomniac, me, I work, and it's the works of the insomniac, right? And so it's all about my experiences with insomnia. And it was an introspective dive into myself because I was tired of not sleeping. And I knew as an, I know as as a healthcare professional, as a nurse, that if I continued this way, it was going to affect my heart. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I was not interested in dying. My father, um, in 2000, my father, my, my mother had uh, asked my father for a divorce at one point, uh, right before their 25th anniversary. And uh, my father slowly, just after that, his health just tanked. And he ended up in the hospital with something called amyloidosis. And amyloidosis is one of the most rare diseases. I, I've only seen it in two people in my career as a nurse. And my father was one of them. Mm-hmm. And it attacks the heart muscle. And it, it's a, a genetic. There's a genetic something that comes online. And it completely destroys the heart. And you have to get a transplant. And um, I watched my father, my father had severe claustrophobia and I watched my father die in a, ho- in a hospital bed attached to a heart bypass machine in, that he was on for almost nine months. Hmm. And it was, it, was, it was terrible, it was terrifying for me. And so, you know, um, that, that space, uh, being in that space was, was, was really hard for me. Yeah. I love my dad, you know, mm. and he was the the one person that would hold space for me regardless of anything. And he supported me in my music. He supported me and always said he believed in me. Mm. And, 
he was a tremendously lonely person and to watch him in that space uh and watch his heart break literally break when uh when when my mother separated from him was was frightening for me and so i saw my heart in my insomnia <laughs> and i was like i'm not going down that route man and so i was like i got to figure out how to get to sleep and i didn't put two and two together that the the the, the bedwetting thing had, had put me into that space and i got so lost in everything that i was doing i forgot mm. that i decided to stop going to sleep let me ask you one thing about your father what what came up for you right there when you I stopped? miss him mm. i miss him he is, he was funny and wonderful and loving and like just the way he loved women uh, was inspirational. Like I can feel it in my body. Like I cry at least once a week, like I'm crying right now. Um, when I speak about my father or anything. Mm. And um, the stuff that I know and how I know how to navigate the human psyche and the human experience. I know that if I had that, if I had these tools the way I have them now, I might have been able to support my father in being in a different space. And um, it kind of fucks with me. You know, it's a really heavy space, and my father is probably my biggest motivation for the work that I do right now. Mm. And watching this man in his angst, in his suffering, in his loneliness, and his love for my mother and my sister and his mother. I saw my father cry twice. My father cried when his mother died, and I think it was 1976. He came home and he cried into a towel. It was the most beautiful thing I'd ever seen. And then when my mother graduated from medical school, my father ran out into the aisle and he was, when she, they called her name. He was like, that's my baby. That's mm -hmm. my baby. And tears just streaming down his face. And the, the, the moments that he had, that joy, that is it. And, that is what I was in search for in my life, was to have that joy. And so I got into this space where I started outsourcing my joy to the women in my life and looking for them to be the, the catalyst for my joy instead of finding it inside of myself. And that's what I saw in my father is that he was outsourcing his joy to the women in his life. And so this is part of my learning experience and diving in with all of these things. And so that's what comes up. So if, if he was here right now, just right here with you, mm -hmm. what do you think he would tell you? Great job, man. Keep it up. I always knew it. And he would say things like that to me, you know, and just really, really subtle. You've got this. You'll figure it out. You always do. You always will. And he would just say that to me. You'll always figure it out, Ta. You will always figure it out. And you got this. He, he never, he is the one person that never had a doubt in me, not a shred of doubt. And, um, and it's, it's something that I never gave myself the opportunity to sit and nurture with him.
was that that confidence that he had in me because he didn't he, he didn't have it in himself <clears throat> he had it in me hmm. do you feel like you have that for yourself now do you still feel like you're doing it for oh, your dad yeah yeah I, I do. I have, I have so my so confidence. The way I see confidence, confidence runs along a continuum. We never lack confidence. We have confidence that we can, will, and do, or can't, won't, and don't. And so there's a confidence. There's a continuum between those two: can, will, do; can't, won't, don't. And so I am confident that I can, will, and do anything that I choose. And when I find myself getting into the space that I can't do something, I won't do something. Right. I, I, and then don't do something, but how am I going to get to the other side? That's, that's how I tweak my confidence spaces. And so I do draw from my father when, when I'm in a space of saying that I can't, I can't do that. I'll never do that. Nope. I bring my father online. He says, you'll figure it out. And so a huge part of the work that I do mm. with people is, is creating strategies. We have something Cole and I call SO running an SOS. And it's part of our integration protocol with, with psychedelics and all these other things. And this is what I'm telling you, man, I draw a lot from my dad. And um, he was very, very limited words, but the feeling and the, and the, the intention behind his, his words were powerful. And so we created this thing we call an SOS and it's running an SOS. Are you checking your state or your strategy? Um, there are no limited human beings. There are only limited states of being and limited strategies to get into those states. And so the strategies provide you the confidence. Where are you in the confidence that you can, will, and do, can't, won't, and don't. And so if your strategy is limited, it might be more on the can't, won't, don't side. If your strategy is unbridled, it's on the can, will, and do. And how do I figure out how to be able to do what it is that I want to do? And so this is the, the, all the work that I do. <laughs> and and uh, I'm, I'm just, if anyone ever comes to me to talk, to, to have a conversation or talk about my work, my father is deeply infused in all of mm-hmm. it. Very, very few words. And I can feel his love all the time. I can feel it in my body. You know, I'm a product of this man, you know, and so uh, this, I can feel it in every atom of my being when I'm in a space of confidence that I can do and will. So when we go back to the story of how you saw your father pass away and Mm -hmm. the fear that came up with your heart, what happened then? Yeah. So, uh, so I wrote the book and in writing the book, I, I, I had a, had one of the things that I learned to do in, in my explorations with myself is to write things out, let it rest and then come back to it later. And then, and the, the stuff that I write reveals something to me that I didn't see before. Usually because when I'm writing, I'm in a sympathetic nervous system state of doing and then when i come back to read it later i'm in a parasympathetic space and my mind is able to expand into a different realm of processing and so i was able to look into these things and see the holes in what i've been doing and how the self-loathing and the habits around it and so the self-talk that i had all of the the negatives 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 i can't do this i won't do this this is messed up i am i am dysfunctional and saying things like i'll never do that or that this is how i am this is how i am very very permanent speech and so i found that in my writing 
And so in that writing, I started to translate that into my music. And so I started to translate the music and the writing into how I speak on a day-to-day -day basis. And so I started to see how my linguistics in how I spoke to other people inspired them to reflect the language back to me, which actually created a habit in my physical body to keep perpetuating the language that felt awesome. And so when, when, I, when I put the language out, and the language is reflected, my body actually generates hormones that feel awesome, like serotonin and dopamine, right? And oxytocin. And these things make me feel connected. And my body started to realign itself around that type of situation. So I was getting all these rewards for being in these spaces of connectivity. And so I started to move into a space where I saw how linguistics affected everything that I do. I am the word, right? And so when I look at the word that I am, I am creating this through how I express and how I elicit a reflection from other human beings. And when I elicit a reflection from other human beings, it influences my organism to generate the hormones that vibrate at a particular frequency. And the frequency that they're vibrating at is a frequency of ease, a frequency of flow, and a frequency of uh, fulfillment. So that's how it's... <laughs> that's where... I what, uh -huh. I, what I'll share with that, what comes up for me, there are a few things that I'm holding back on. The confidence is one thing I'll touch upon first. Rap and hip hop, growing up in Sweden, I was never exposed to it. I was my minor like uh, pop hip hop things. But then I found DMX. <laughs> and, oh man, I love DMX. <laughs> uh, and the first album I ever bought at... I don't know, 11, 12 years old was it's hot. Um, it's dark and hell is hot. And if for anyone who knows this album, it's it's hardcore uh, for for 11, 12 year old Swedish boy who barely well decently speaks English. Um, it opened up a whole new world. And uh, New York rap is very close to my heart. Uh, everything from Talib Kweli, Mostef. Uh, oh. Jada Kiss, Cormega, Nas, I mean, the list goes on. You mentioned several of them, Tribe Called Quest. I mean, there's so many. And mm -hmm. um, so while you're speaking of, I'm like, like I told you, I don't do much research intentionally. And now I'm like, I'm going to just, I'm holding myself back not to listen to <laughs> like, what, where are your tracks? I'm going to listen to them right after this. So um, the, the word, what you're speaking of, the vibration of the word so deep and so meaningful like that was my therapy like growing up those were my best friends were the rappers because i couldn't relate to the people around me like that's where i drew connection inspiration love but also meaning from like i had my first like real speeches in class um were about one was on i started getting into southern rap after that was one was in college about chameleonaire and one of his songs and another one, um, I uh, talking about biting. Uh, <laughs> uh, one of my English papers that I wrote in high school, I copied uh, one of Slick Rick's songs, <laughs> added a few things, and the teacher's like, um, "This is amazing. <laughs> have you really written this?" I'm like, "Yeah, yeah, I have." Um, and we would get into arguments because she'd say, "Oh, you shouldn't be like rap and hip hop is so." like there's profanity and so on well you just gave me the best a grade on my my essay that was a copy of slick Rick's <laughs> freaking one of his songs so um yeah 
Uh, awesome. With um with your connection to words uh, mm. and how you speak, I mean, what you were you speaking to me right now? It's just it's mesmerizing. It's mesmerizing. It's captivating. Like how? Where where did things start shifting in your life? Like you you started saying that you wrote this book. That you we haven't touched upon the personal training thing. We went into the sex thing. Like how how did where did the changes? Like when you start diving deeper to in yourself and start realizing, okay, well, yeah. yeah, that's a great question. That's a that's a great question. And I've always been a deep person. Um, my mother used to I, I used to say to my mother, you know, it's really basic. She'd be like, no, you're not a basic person. You are not basic by any stretch of the imagination. And I had no idea what she was talking about. I had assumed. And I don't do very many assumptions anymore in my life. I had assumed that everybody thought the way I do. And so this is one of the reasons I, I was very, I felt very lonely is because when I would speak, people would be like, what are you talking about? Because they didn't get it. And so I had to actually dial into my language and see how my language was affecting other people. Mm. And so in that exploration, in that 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 book and that that album, Moon in the Dark Alleys, there was a reflective, there's, there's a chapter in there called uh there's a book uh, a song called horror calamity and i was in a triangle with two women and that i was tremendously in love with and i was lying to both of them just lying because i wanted i didn't want to hurt them but i wanted to be with them and i wanted to do this and i got it was just so crazy and i had wanted to kill myself because i wanted to get out of it that was the only way I could see myself getting out of it. I couldn't see myself just saying bye. I wanted to kill myself. And so this is where this, I and I, that's a place that I, I it's a space. <laughs> if you've never experienced it, it's, it's not, this. It's, it's not a space I would recommend diving into. Um, suicide is a, is a frightening, frightening space. And it's a, it's a very heightened situation where I went from this place of not wanting to die watching my father die to wanting to die and uh and active and actively making plans to kill myself and mm -hmm. it was it was bananas and because i love these women so much like again my father's influence of loving on women mm -hmm. right? like i love these women and um I, I i couldn't see my way out and it's because my strategy was limited and so i started looking to figure out how what i needed to do and so i got started to amass all of these songs and all of these unwritten things that i had in boxes and i would lay them out and i would just read and so i started to see that all of these things that i had written out over my life were actually messages to myself for that moment and so all of this stuff started to come together and i started to see the the congruence of all of these things and so luminous dark alleys the insomniac works was a huge part of me starting to open myself up into considering things differently than i had been considering things and then i and then i started to see things happen in the healthcare industry um there was a huge push for the flu shot and I was like, why are they pushing the flu shot so hard? Like we've had the flu in, in our, on our planet for a long time, but they're really pushing the flu shot. So there were two things that really that really struck my attention. The flu shot and how hard they were pushing it, how they was, they were, there was a, a rollout to give flu shots away to everybody, right, for free and to put it everywhere and to make sure that kids were getting it and old people. And it just kind of struck me in, in a weird space. And there's a medication called Lipitor. Lipitor is a, a 
is a medication that's given for cholesterol to bring people's cholesterol down. And so they started to put these protocols in place. If somebody came in with chest pain to give what we called stat Lipitor and stat means right now. And Lipitor takes weeks to start working, right? It's not something that's going to be working right now. And so why am I giving stat? Why is this in our protocols to give to people who are in chest pain? You start them on Lipitor right now. Why is this so important? In, in, and with, you know, you give them aspirin and Lipitor. Like, why are we doing this? And so I just started to investigate that those two drugs and some other stuff that was going on in a, in a hospital situation, the, the, the vaccine and certain other things. And so I started to, to see the fishiness that was going on. And I started to see um, the surveys and stuff that they were doing to, to get people to become repeat customers. And it just started to really, really freak me out. And I was like, I don't like this. And I took an oath as a nurse to do no harm, right? That's part of the Hippocratic oath is I promise to do no harm. And I started to go to, to work every day. And the one place I felt like I could be authentic and just do the thing and help people. Yeah. I felt like I was doing harm. So here comes my shame complex online again, right? It's just like the shame complex of of, of having sex with the, with these people in in the dark. Now I'm going to work and I'm giving people medications that I don't believe that they should have, right? And I don't like to, to use the word should, but I didn't believe that these people should have these medications, right? Something is in place that is is not is not in flow, and so. Uh, I, I, at, at one point I stopped taking, um, they, they put H1N1, right? The swine flu, they started putting that in, into yeah. the flu shot in, and first they announced that the swine, the swine flu is starting to get rampant. And then like six, maybe nine months later, they had it in the vaccine. And I was like, that's real quick for them to develop a vaccine and just put it in the flu shot. And I was like, I'm not taking the flu shot anymore. And so I, I, I stopped taking a flu shot. The administrators at the hospital started to get really upset and they were like, well, you have to wear a mask. I was like, okay. So I was wearing a mask for 12 hours, right? Every two hours I would change my mask, right? I was, I was wearing a mask. I would put smiley faces on my mask. I wasn't taking the flu shot. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I got threatened to be fired and all this. I was like, then fire me. And so I started looking for an out. And so I had been training people with fitness for a long time because I, I was kind of making a transition, right? I was doing my music. I was uh, being, I was doing a nursing thing and I was coaching people in fitness. And so I, I had started to make this transition away and I developed this thing called underground celebrity fit club. And I was training all the underground artists and MCs and singers in New York and all of these things. We had boot camps, and that's how I met Cole. And I met Cole uh, at, uh, in my music, I met her at, um, in Las Vegas, we did a show together at a conference called music strategies. And we had been loosely associated and Cole called me up one day in, I think it was in 2012. She called me up. She, she had moved back to New York because she was from Utah. And she said, Hey, you know, I'm having a Cinco de Mayo party. Can you come by? And I was like, okay. And so I went to her, to her house and, you know, uh, the girl I was dating, our relationship, an eight, eight year dating situation, I was coming to a crash. Um, I went and I saw Cole and I was like, man, she looks so amazing. It's so great to see her again. And as that relationship started to crash, me and Cole started to create fitness programs for people to lose weight. And, mm. and, and we had hundreds of people online, 
losing body fat. And so I was like, yeah, maybe I need to really lean into my personal training shit. And so I started leaning into that and making a transition away from nursing mm-hmm. because I felt like I I had more influence in that space to actually help people stay out of the hospital. And that was my thing. I want people to stay out of the hospital. And so I started doing that and um, I got into the space where I just kept saying, I got to get out of here. I got to get out of here. I got to get out of here. I got to get out of this hospital. And I ended up fracturing uh, a vertebra in my spine, lifting a patient and and mm. herniating disc in my back. My L5S1 had squashed a disc and I couldn't walk for three months. So mm. while my clients were gone, I couldn't tour with my music. I couldn't do nursing. I couldn't do anything. And so I had to sit for three months on this couch in this one really crazy slouch position so that I wouldn't be in pain. And Cole had asked me, she was like, Hey, you know, she was like, I'm going to this ceremony. I, I think you should come. And I was like, well, what's that? And she's like, well, you know, you, you take these, you, you go into this, this place and you sit within a circle with all these people and you take these plants and you go off into a psychedelic realm and you kind of find yourself. And I was like, Oh, you want me to do some drugs with some hippie white people? I'm not doing that shit. And she was like, <laughs> right. And so, and right. And because I was indoctrinated, man, yeah. you know, in, 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 the, in the healthcare industry, um, any kind of substances that alter you other than what big pharma is prescribing. No, absolutely not. I'm not doing that shit. I'm not going to be a junkie. I'm not doing that. And so, it, it, which was the thing that was crazy for me is I, I didn't have any judgment for anybody that did any any substances. I had a, had a really close friend that was a functional alcoholic and used cocaine to actually to journey like hmm. that. That's his medicine. Right. And hmm. he would go off into these places and he knew exactly what he was doing, how to dose himself. And it was every Thursday. Right. And he would go into the space. And so I, I knew how to navigate that and so I was like, I don't judge her for doing this. I have plenty of friends that smoke weed. I'm in hip hop, right? <laughs> like I don't, I'm not judging you. I'm just not doing that shit. And so it got to a point where she was, uh, she was going again, and she was like, Look, I see where you are, and I think that you would be a tremendous asset to the community of people that are doing psychedelics because of the way you think and the way you're able to navigate spaces and linguistics and all this stuff. I had no idea what she was talking about. And so I was like, I'll go because I trust you. And I went and I had a really, really small dose of something called MDA or sassafras, right? And it put me, and this is what's considered a heart opener, like MDMA, right? It's actually what MDMA metabolizes into MDA. Hmm. And, uh, and I had this I, it was the most grimy experience. I felt terrible and I was scared. I was frightened because I had never really been altered before. Like the first time I sm- I tried marijuana, I was 36 and I had never really been altered outside of alcohol in that. And so I spent like three hours just holding coal. I was petrified. And she said, Top, why don't you just, can, can you just let go? And as I let go, the whole experience changed. And I figured out in that moment, in that moment that I was a control freak Mm. and that I was looking to control everything at the same time. People, the way people saw me, the way people saw other people, the way people interacted with it. And so I was doing this through how I spoke to people. And so my linguistics and how I was, I was really great with words. I was able to kind of influence people into spaces based on, on how I was speaking. And so no matter what, it, my motive, my primary motivator, right in my life, and and this is one of the things that that I that I found out in this in this uh, in this particular in this experience. And this first experience was that my primary motivator 
was to make sure that all the lies that I had been telling and all the hiding that I had been doing in my life to make sure that it never got back to my mother so she would not approve of me. Hmm. And so circling back to the very first part of this story when I was telling you, this very first part of this interview, when I was telling you about my situation with my mom and how I... I, I I felt undervalued. I did everything to prove to my mother that I was valuable and, and worthy of her love. And so if she found out about anything that I was doing, I made sure that no nobody, there was no paper trail. So mm-hmm. all of the grime, all of the things that I'm doing, all the, the stuff that I'm talking about on this podcast, my mother is just learning about because I had hidden it so well from my entire family. My entire family. Nobody knew what was going on with me. I used to sneak out of my house in the middle of the night in, 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 the, in, the, in the 80s, and I would go and hang out with crackheads. I would just watch them do crack. Hmm. I would watch them, and, and I would watch their faces twist up, and that's one of the reasons why I never wanted to do substances, because I would go and talk to them. But the despair that they were in and all of the stories that they were in and, and the vulnerability, I saw the humanity in these people. Hmm. Anyway, so you know, in, in, in that psychedelic experience, I, I had this this huge opening around uh, the control that I had been looking to have over my my environment. And that control is an illusion. I can influence things, can't control things. And so the amount of energy that my brain was putting into controlling the environment is part of what was still keeping me awake, right? And so this started to open me up into considering other things. And so, in psychedelics, you, you, you disable what's called the default mode network, which is how your brain is wired to, to, see, to see things in a particular way, your habit forms. And so this got disabled. And so now I was able to see things differently, right? In a more expansive way than I had before. I was like, how, what is, how have I not seen this before? How have I not seen this? And so I started to explore and I started to explore my linguistics in a different way where I was eliciting situations from other people and having them reinforce things in me by just asking things like um one of the most profound things in that journey uh that very first experience that i had was cole said to me uh how you doing i was like i'm good she's like you always say that that's such a canned response why can't you be awesome you're awesome to me i mean why can't you be amazing you're amazing to me she said amazing and i said yeah i am amazing and i was like "Ooh, i like the way that feels and so what i started to do was i started to ask people how are you? Right? How are you? And they would say, I'm good. I'm okay. How are you? I'm like, I'm amazing. And I would <laughs> feel yeah. the amazing feeling that I had in my body. And I was like, is it that simple to elicit this for myself? And so I would, it, so it's, it's still a part of my day-to-day experience. When somebody, I, I ask people, how are you? So they can say something and whatever they say, and they ask me, how are you? I'm like, man, I'm fucking awesome, right? And so it draws this into my body and it gets mm-hmm. my body to reset itself into a different space. And so I started to see how linguistics influenced everything around me and how I, I started started pulling back from looking to control things. And I got more courageous in the space of vulnerability and letting people see me. And my nervous system started to calm down. And one day Cole came by my house and this is, this is when we were dating. She came by with, with, with uh, Henry, my little dog, right? Before he was my dog, he was just Cole's dog. And they spent the night and uh, uh, we, were, we were talking and I just went to sleep and I slept for six hours. And that was the most I had slept in eons. Hmm. And and I, I blamed it on Cole. I was like, man, it's Cole. 
Cole stayed over and I went to sleep and it's all Cole. And so down the road, I started to evaluate. I started to backtrack what happened. And I said, what happened that night? And so I started thinking about it. Cole and I sat there and we talked to each other and I had told Cole things that I had never told any other human being. Mm-hmm. Shame things, sex things, money things, stealing things, all of the stuff that I had done. And after that, got out of my body. My body wasn't controlling the story anymore. And somebody actually accepted me for who I was in the raw. That was the safest I had ever felt in my life. And in that safety, my body allowed me to actually go to sleep because I wasn't hypervigilant. I wasn't worried that this would get back to my mom. I wasn't worried about any of this stuff anymore. And so I started to play with honesty. I started to trickle it out to my friends. Hey, listen, I never told you this. Now I have a, I have, my daughter is 32 years old, right? Or she'll be 32 this year. And um, <laughs> I have, have, have two grandkids, right? And the oldest one is 13 and the youngest one is seven. And when my, my youngest grandson was born, I put pictures of my grandson on Facebook. And I was like, oh, it's my grandson. And I started to get phone calls <laughs> from people, from really close friends. And they were like, yo, how do you have a grandson? I didn't even know you had a kid. Hmm. And I had been so ashamed of being a father at 18. And I was a father at 18. Mm-hmm. And this is, this is part of it. This is, I didn't even bring this into the story when I was talking about it earlier. Uh, and uh, I didn't mention my daughter to anybody because I was so ashamed to, to be a father. And my mother's huge disapproval upon me being a parent at that age. Um, so I kept it to myself. I didn't not tell anybody. I mean, I didn't hide it. I just didn't tell anybody. <laughs> you know what I mean? I just didn't mention it. If somebody was like, oh, you have a kid? I'd be like, yeah. But nobody asked me, so I never said anything. And so I had this huge this huge situation and circumstance around having this kid and not being honest. And I started being honest about it. And people started to confront me, and I just started to be honest about it. And I started to go to sleep more and more and more hmm. and more. And I saw that that control in my brain and how complex it was, the complex weave of storytelling I had been doing my entire life. And as I started letting go of those constructs, right, those, each story is a construct, as I started letting go. Because if I, would, if, if I were to tell you and I was to tell your wife and to tell your daughter, I would have three different, three different renditions of the same story to make sure that it never got back to you in, in, in any particular way other than I wanted you to perceive it. Right. And so this was on autopilot for everybody that I knew. And so this is one of the, this is, I believe this is one of the the influences on why I couldn't go to sleep is because I had programmed myself into this type of behavior and my nervous system was always on alert. (laughs) It was just always on, like, I got to make sure nobody finds out. Mm -hmm. And so it was always working. So yeah, that's, that's how I got into this work. And so being in, in, you know, working in psychedelics, uh, 
people started to ask Cole and I to go to journeys because of we would have we would sit with people and we would have conversations and they would have these huge breakthroughs based mm-hmm. on the questions we would ask them. Mm-hmm. And it was how we asked the questions and how I knew how and Cole knew how to ride a person's nervous system. And that's what we call it, riding a nervous system. Based on the, how a person's breathing, what their skin tone is like, what their body temperature is like, what the cadence of their of their speech and the tone of their voice is, we could actually know how, how and when to ask a question to elicit something from them so that they could actually see themselves in totality in the, in the, in the hiding that they've been doing. And the, the asset that I have is that I lied so much about so many things, I can see through a lie like that. Mm. Like in a second, I can, I can see through a lie. And I don't judge the lie, right? Because I was the liar, right? I was the liar, <laughs> yeah, man. Yeah. I used to lie about everything. So I don't judge it. I know what lies are for. Lies are there to protect. They have one purpose and one purpose only, and that's to protect to protect information, right? Why? What would happen if this information got out, right? There's something that someone's protecting. And so when you get a person to be in a safe space where they're fully accepted and you are, not, are honoring their, their, their truth and stuff, you're not going to go blab it to everybody else. You honor it and you welcome it. Their lie is now a welcome thing and they can start to see the information as information. And so we started to sit with people in psychedelic spaces and they would have these huge revelations and these huge openings and would change their relationship, their businesses, their job situations, their relationships with food, their relationship with exercise, all of these things started shifting. And so people started having me and Cole come to these journeys. And Cole is a very, very, very masculine. When she gets into her, she's a female in a female body and she can be very masculine. I'm in a male body. I can be very chaotic and feminine, right? And so we have this way of navigating spaces that is unlike anything that we've seen. And so so we started to do, people started to ask us to do our own events. And we were like, we're not facilitators. We, we're just, you know, we're just participants. And so it got to a point where, um, you know, we we started to explore having our own events and, and facilitating psychedelic environments. And people would have these tremendous longstanding situations. And a lot of it had to do with how we do an inventory on people, how we do an intake on people, and how we move that into a space of making sure that the intention of me as a facilitator is inter- interwoven and integrated with the intention of you as a person or a participant. Hmm. Then how how your body, not just your body and your mind, not just the place that you're in, but also the the setting, the set of your constructs, right? Your identity, your race, religion, gender, ethnicity, nationality, um, your family structures, how all of that coincides with you as an individual, your social set, and 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 your emotional body, how all of this stuff works as an individual, and then after that integrating the experience into your day-to-day life. How do you, what's the plan, right? You got this new information, you're this new person. What are you gonna do with this? I had an opportunity uh, when I first started my psychedelic experiences to work with some A-list, A-list facilitators who when stuff came up for me, Cole called them and we went and sat down with them and they helped me to map out how I'm going to integrate this information and, and, and bring it into my life. And so I took that and I was like, oh, I see. And so I started to integrate my own stuff and I started to help people integrate in the experience, right? And we start integrating inside the experience and then outside of the experience. And so this is how we, we develop this stuff. And so after a period of time, 
uh, we see the, the revolution that's been going on in psychedelics. We see that psychedelics are hitting the stock market. Big Pharma's got its hands in it. A multidisciplinary Association of Psychedelic Studies is doing trials. Uh, Johns Hopkins is doing all of this work. Columbia, all of these people are doing these these studies mm -hmm. and psychedelics are on the rise. And so there aren't uh, the, the amount of uh, psychedelic psychotherapists that are that are potential in this in this country in the United States or in the world at large is very limited. And so the more people we see as as having the ability to support people in integrating their experiences is going to make a, a huge a possibility for a huge shift on this planet. And so that's how I got into what I do. And now, how does this, like, wh how can people interact with the work that you do today, you and Cole? Oh, man. Um, well, we have a what we call a psychedelic-informed practitioner training, and it's called the Condor Approach. And we do a five-day intensive where uh, we, we teach people how to navigate these spaces, uh, to navigate the integration space through linguistics, understanding certain archetypes and and uh running sos like i said before assessing state and strategy and all of these things we also teach our practitioners how to actually create a business structure that will support them doing what they're doing through whatever is going on it doesn't matter if there's a re recession or inflation or depression this is this is this can work beyond that because we teach a, a format that is one practitioner to many people in in the in, in the service space and so it we teach people how to not be dependent on on any kind of health insurance or anything like that this is a format where this is accessible to people at large and so that's what we're teaching we have a five-day component we do it three times a year there's a five-day in-person or online component and then there's a 12-week situation where you actually go through the integration process right and so we teach you the process and then you go through it uh so the, the five day is actually the transformational experience like we have four in intake intention setting in the space and in integration and the the five day is actually the in space component and then we integrate over over a 12-week period and it's it's wonderful man i mean we do it february june and september and it's 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 wonderful we have a movement we call integration is not optional because we are always integrating things that we experience are we aware of and are we in the, the person who is the chief influencer upon our in our integration of our transformational experiences transformational experiences in in the lens that we're working right now is psychedelics but this can be applied to anything we have people applying this to life coaching we have people applying this to their their patients that come through hospital situations because that's a transformational experience when you're ill or you're sick or something happens to you it's a transformational experience and so we are we are working with people in this space because we it doesn't you don't need to be a physician to coach somebody through their own stuff <laughs> you don't need to prescribe medication you don't need to even give anybody psychedelics to support them in the integration of what they have experienced. And this is why we were training people because this is something that everybody can get in on. And these are skills that we're teaching our practitioners to teach their clients so that they're empowered. And so it's not, I don't, I don't have to depend upon my coach. My coach teaches me this and I'm able to coach myself. And so we're looking to in, get people to integrate their experiences. And so that's what we offer. 
so you touched upon it with the dynamic that you and Cole have, and that's exactly what Sophia and I experienced, my wife and I, when we met you, is that that you embodied a very soft, you call it also chaotic part energy, and one can associate that with the feminine, and, and Cole is very much of a dynamic, powerful force, and sometimes one can yeah, associate that with the masculine, and I think that's such a beautiful representation of what's happening and is uh it's just there's a i I don't want to say a need but there is a it would benefit the collective so much and i think so many people are looking for it for example in a masculine there's so many who are so uptight like myself like there's the stereotypical you don't express your emotions you go about your life in a very structured disciplined way you provide you earn the money you climb the ladder and you do very certain things well, on the feminine, it's it's almost been repressed and it's almost be in the shadow. Don't speak up. Don't do as you're told and be this pretty girl. And and you're both twisting that completely. And it's so freaking refreshing. And I I know that's why I so much deeply related to you and why I was just in, in, in tears when I saw you speak because you said something along the lines like, I don't give a fuck what any of you think of me because I've been through this I lived through this and if I can help any single person in this room that is what I do it for and people were just crying left and right like men women and just you could feel it deep in your soul deep in your heart like this is the man who's putting everything on the line it doesn't doesn't care like you like this healing is more worth than anything like yourself than anyone else around you so thank you Thank you, man. And I, I appreciate that reflection. And I do care. I just don't give a fuck. <laughs> you know, I, I care a great deal. I don't give a fuck. Yeah. And, and uh, it's, it's, this is, this is now is not the time family for us to, to, to tiptoe around the love that we have for one another. I'm not going to paint a pretty picture. My love is all over the place. And when I speak about chaotic, my love is everywhere. It can't be harnessed, mm-hmm. and 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 the that's the, that's for me that's feminine, right? The feminine energy is all over the place, and masculine energy kind of nudges it into some 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 kind of order. But if you have masculine energy that's holding and preventing the feminine energy from expanding, you have hyper masculinity, and this is what people would consider toxic masculinity. I don't see it as toxic; I see it as hyper. We have overgrown the masculine components that keep us into these spaces where we're rigid, where we're stoic, where we, we can't move. And so the feminine energy is what's bubbling up inside. And so to be able to have the feminine energy bubble and then to kind of nudge it into spaces that it, it, it functions for both, that's Tantra. So you have the ebb and you have the flow, you have the yin and you have the yang, right? You have all of these things and this is where we are in flux. And so this is, this is, this is, one of the things that that I work with with my clients and my coaches is to make sure that you are mindful of being very, very rigid because we need to flux. I flux with you, man. I flux with you, <laughs> right? And so to be able to be in flux is tremendously important. And I think that that the container that Cole and I provide 
is is really interesting because we flux in and out of these two spaces, right? And so Cole is is very much a woman, and she's got a lot of feminine stuff going on. She's got her masculine game is crazy, mm-hmm. like it's crazy. I I don't like I watch her and I learn from her in that space, and she looks at me and she learns about femininity and soft and being able to be fallen into, <laughs> right? And mm-hmm. so that's in, that's an important space for us to toggle. And so thank you for that reflection. I appreciate that. Yeah, and on the flip side like you said will be cold like there's instantaneous respect like you know she she had one of her lines like i don't surrender like i don't surrender to god i don't surrender to anyone but i can i don't know the exact words that she used but i can allow something to happen i can allow myself to be part of an experience and and it was so empowering i feel like that's so even as a man i learned what you were saying there too about masculinity about getting empowered and i feel especially for women like she's really owning her worth and who she is and what she's doing yep. in this world and she will not take any shit from anyone and i think that's so freaking beautiful and amazing that she's doing that and how the two of you mesh and and ebb and flow and and uh i, I mean yeah that there's a reason you were you were up on uh, on stage at one point or later you were called up on stage. <laughs> Not you weren't part of the actual talk, but there's a panel discussion, and all these uh, influencers in self development just called you up on stage, and all of a sudden it was the Ta and Cole show. Because, <laughs> and, and and I mean that in a way like you, the, the work that you guys are doing and how you're doing it, like you're moving mountains, you're creating waves, and. Uh, yeah, let us all be part of that ocean and that that beautiful world. So thank you. Thank you, man. I appreciate that so much. I, I think it's tremendously important to provide a format and a voice for people who feel like they don't have one. And I, I know I was one of those people. Mm. Beautiful. Ta, it's been a sincere pleasure. This is just, <sighs> yeah. Thank you for everything that you do. Thank you so much. And uh, yeah, anybody who's interested in, in diving in and leaning in, um, take you know, jump on our website, talkhole.com, T-A-H-K-O-L-E. And we have an amazing integration manual that uh, that is free. It's, it's talkhole.com backslash free, F-R-E-E. We are doing a full version of this and we are, have already translated it into Portuguese, Spanish, and German. The French edition is coming and we want to get it into as many languages as possible to serve as many people. Cool. And we're just giving it away. Nice. I will link everything in the show notes. Uh, yeah, check it out. I highly recommend it. Um, the whole condor message that they have, read about it. It's fascinating if you're into myth, mythology and uh, symbols. Again, thank you, Tal, for jumping on. Thank you, family. Peace. Peace. Tal Witty truly moved me in this episode as sexual abuse is part of my past and people around me I truly appreciate his courage to share what he shared and if you feel like this might hit home for you then I kindly ask you to give some feedback. Leave a review. Maybe hit five stars or a like. Because this helps now other people see this podcast. Find this podcast. So thank you for sharing and giving the love back. 
truly appreciate it. Much love.